0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Lama Suryadas. Das. Lama Suryadas Das is one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars, as well as one of the main interpreters of Tibetan Buddhism in the West. He has spent over 45 years studying Zen, Vipassana, Yoga, and Tibetan Buddhism with the great masters of Asia, including the Dalai Lama's own teachers. Lama Suryadas is the founder of the Zogchen Foundation and the author of many books including Awakening the Buddha Within and Awakening to the Sacred, as well as a new book from Sounds True, Make Me One with Everything, Buddhist Meditations to Awaken from the Illusion of Separation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lama Suryadas and I spoke about what it means to be with it and not against it. We also talked about intermeditating in nature, intermeditating with difficult emotional experiences, and even intermeditating with people we could call our enemies. Finally, as a theme running throughout this entire conversation, we talked about what it means not only to let things go, but to let things come, and how when we let things go and let things come we learn how to let things be. Here's my conversation with Lama Suridas. Good Lama. You know that's one of my nicknames for you. I have so many. It's good to be with you. Thank you for joining Insights at the Edge.
1: Thank you. And you too, Tammy.
0: You've written this new book, Make Me One with Everything, Buddhist Meditations to Awaken from the Illusion of Separation. And in it, you write about something you call intermeditation. So let's begin. What do you mean by intermeditation?
1: Well, this work is really about a new phase or newish phase of teaching that I've been doing lately to my students and practices I've been developing for busy people to make everything into woven like a co-meditation, an intermeditation, being with whatever it is rather than again it, and moving from I to we, and from meditation to we-ditation. So intermeditation, it's like Thich Nhat Hanh's interbeing, recognizing our inseparability with everyone and everything. We could talk technically about the inseparability of self and other or a subject and object, but just more practically, how we're not separ- as separate as we think or feel, and how happiness or well being or completeness is not just a matter of how we momentarily feel, but an attitude, a fullness, an embracing. And this is the point of this kind of shared meditation, shared spirituality, intermeditation. Co meditation, weeditation, not meditation. And I'm really enjoying this because it's so easy to include our pets. And I know you just lost your beloved dog, Jasmine. Mm-hmm. And you're co meditating with her right now, and you feel like she's with you and with your partner. And that's so true. And I still feel that with my late parents or my late gurus. But also intermeditating with nature let's say, quote, externally or internally with our own feelings, not rejecting them or being against them, just experiencing them fully and integrating them healthily and then choosing how, when, and if to respond, what to make of them. So it's really a shared spirituality. It's a opening to oneness. It's a way of making we the new I.
0: Hmm, Tell me what you mean by that, making we the new I. That's beautiful.
1: Well, if you were a New Yorker, you would understand that that life is fashion and appearances. (laughs) As uh, the Mahamudra teachings might agree, everything is mere appearance. So they are always talking about what is the new black, and recently orange was the new black. So now I'm saying we is the new I. And I believe this for our increasingly interconnected and interdependent age, our shrinking globe our global economy, our intermeshed socioeconomics and information era, and our global environmental situation where we are obviously all in the same boat and we will rise or fall, sink or swim together. So from I to we, from selfishness or self-help to awakening together, to shared spirituality, to seeing through the illusion of separateness, the tyranny or the cocoon of ego, letting down the drawbridge, as Trunk Rinpoche might say, of the moat surrounding our ego's castle, keep, or bastion, fortress, and letting others in and out, and with every breath. As I've written about in this book, taking Lojong, attitude transformation, so-called mind training, the Tibetan practice of Lojong, or And um, riding the breath as a good practice for exchanging self and others, feeling what others are feeling, resonating with them, empathizing and connecting through Lojong and Tongwen, giving and receiving, breathing in and out. To open up this armor, to cross this moat, to lower the drawbridge, to be more vulnerable, not hypersensitive, but open and vulnerable, as well as fortifying our inner strength let's say, in principle, or, you know, mental strength or mental discipline as well, not just mind, but spiritual inner strength.
0: So LSD, you know, that's one of my other nicknames for you. You mentioned briefly the lojong, and I think a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with that. Tell them what you mean by that.
1: Um, Lojong, as I said, is a Tibetan practice of mind training or attitude transformation, spiritual refinement, lojong. And it, it's a way of reducing selfishness, of transforming our selfish you know, attitude, our childish 13 independence or self-seeking or self-help mentality into more universal responsibility as the Dalai Lama would call it, bodhicitta as the Buddhists call it, caring for all as if they're ourselves. So this is the attitude transformation of opening to a more... A bigger view, opening our hearts and minds, inclusive, not exclusive, less selfish, less self-help, and more helpful, generous, altruistic, and compassionate. So that's the lojong practice. It's a Tibetan, it's a Mahayana Buddhist or universal vehicle, big vehicle, big path kind of way of thinking, not just thinking of one's own individual happiness or retirement or momentary feelings, but of others including others as well, our mates, our families, our colleagues, and, of course, by extension, our neighbors in our neighborhood, our town, our community, our environment, our world, and all we'll beings, not just human beings, if we're widening out the view of this Mahayana Buddhist vision and this Lojong practice of attitude transformation, of mind training, heart-mind training or bodhicitta training.
0: Now, let's say somebody's listening, and of course they're with you in principle, but let's say it's somebody who doesn't always feel competent empathizing with other people, but they want to. What would you suggest?
1: Well, that's exactly why I've written this book and why I'm developing these teachings and original kind of fresh ways of intermeditating and co-meditating, Tammy. Because it's kind of co-meditations for busy people and intermeditation for people who think they can't concentrate, be quiet, and meditate. It doesn't take very long to breathe in and breathe out or breathe in and breathe out together or practice eye-gazing with another, with a partner, or to share spirituality together intentionally, to have a, a nature walk or an intimate embrace in silence or some practice practically where you start to feel with other rather than separate from or against or competitive or or worse you know anxious about what they're thinking or worried or preoccupied but being very mindful and heartful and soulful in that moment soul to soul and that helps us learn to empathize that's the point of this tongue land, this breathing in and breathing out together exchanging self and others Tonglen practice, giving and receiving, Tonglen in Tibetan. So we start to resonate with them. So we start to get on the same wavelength, like tuning forth, attuning and vibrating together. Then we're naturally more feeling full and feeling what the other feels and being more focused and centered and present and less distracted. Then we're better listeners. Then we're more tuned in together with the, quote, other. And I'm saying the other in quotes because the other isn't always a person. It could be. A pet, we covered that. It could be with a nature element, like I love to co-meditate with water of any kind. I'm naturally still and centered and non-moving but flowing. And some people like the fire element or the earth element. So with nature, this is the essence of a natural organic meditation or co-meditation with nature, nature mysticism, very practical backyard, nature merging, And this is not our usual idea of meditating, where people think of closing their eyes and trying to concentrate and not think, which, of course, is not the point. Meditation is about awareness of thoughts and feelings and perceptions, not eradicating them, but being more aware, mindful, and wise about them. So in this sense, I feel it's very important for us in these days where people are busy, where we're in a secular age, where people are not necessarily interested in the religious framework, to be able to, as the great Tibetan Kagyu master, the Gyalwang Drukpa says, everything must be meditated. In you know, other words, not meditated on, but with, in, within, not separate from. And that's this notion of co-meditation. And empathizing, empathy, which is the root of compassion, by the way, by feeling what others feel, we naturally feel closer to helping them, or let's say at least treating others as we would be treated. They're more like we are. We can feel that rather than an unknown or or something to fear. So everything can and even must be intermeditated because it really is. Subject and object are inseparable, and everything is so subjective. It's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. So we find freedom and peace in this, a really a, a buoyance a buoyance and a transparency.
0: Well, let's get specific, Lama Suryadas. Das. So you're talking about how you enjoy co-meditating with water. So tell me specifically, how do you do it?
1: Okay. And I've written about this, and, you know, because my books are like workbooks, the way I see it, with like practical exercises. So I point out that I used to sit by the ocean or walk by the ocean, and try to meditate, close my eyes, concentrate on my breathing or mantra, you know, traditional Buddhist or like yogic, samadhi kind of meditation. And then I realized that I was struggling to concentrate or with thoughts. And actually, what I really wanted to do and really felt to do, and what was really happening was I was hearing the waves and the wind, and it itself was washing everything away. And I could relax. I didn't have to try to concentrate on the breath. I could just watch the waves and hear the wind. And that was the breath of life, of the earth. I could co-meditate with the ocean, and it, would, it washed everything away. And then there was no me and it, and there was no me trying to relax. There was just the flow. And I see this, in so often people have a, a sacred zone or a way of being in their life where they're naturally one with things. For example, a parent... Who comes home from work late and goes in to check up on their children, their child, their children in their bedroom. There's no point in sitting there and closing your eyes and going inward and trying to meditate. All well, you have to is sit there and watch the child breathe. And it's as if all the angels are in the room. You have a total divine co-meditation, quote, with the child, with the angels. Because it's a heart-opening, separation-dissolving natural, loving experience. That's what I call intermeditation or co-meditation. I've written about it in this book, Tammy. I coined the term momitation for that because I'm not a very politically correct person. Of course, a father might be able to experience this too, but I call it momitation. So in a way, you'd be breathing with your child, but not making a big deal about it. But it, it will naturally happen just watching their little chest rise and fall and just letting go of the day and your worldly, let's say, preoccupations. And resting, dissolving, being in the heart of love, in the nowness, awareness, in in really inseparable. That's the big love. That's the real love. That's unconditional love beyond the duality, beyond the polarities of like and dislike. That's the real love. And I think that's what these kind of co-meditations help us arrive at and get used to. And help us see through the illusion of separation day to day, not just with our child, but with other children, all God's children, all creatures, eventually.
0: Now, LSD, in addition to breathing with, whether it's the rising and falling of your child's breath in mama meditation, mom meditation. Momitation. meditation, or uh, being at the ocean is there anything else that you might say are pointers for how I engage in intermeditation when I'm in an experience like being with the ocean or a lake?
1: Well, I'm trying to break it down to make it so simple that you can't miss. And I think that's an important principle. Of course, there's many other tips and pointers that I could mention that are in the 300 pages of my book or that come up every time my t-shirt or if somebody has something different, like how can I do it while I'm exercising how can I do it you know, while I'm working with my hands on the craft project or at my workplace and so on? Or even how can we do this while we're arguing with somebody or with a difficult person or an enemy? But in general, I think the important thing I'm trying, the point I want to make here is rather than just adding on, I'd like to strip it down to the most simple, which is breathe, relax, and let go, which means letting come and go, letting be. And and smile and relax into it. And that's the basic way of centering, of arriving, and of loosening the grip of dualistic consciousness or of grasping and clinging, however you want to define it if you want to talk uh, theory. And of course there's many other things we could discuss, you know, what position to be in or what situations are more or less conducive to you, like for some it might be nature for others. It might be um, music or uh, some other beautiful thing that overawes the ordinary thoughts and moves you or transports you beyond your, your, the bubble like confines of yourself into the oceanic oneness of this kind of interbeing, intermeditation. So I'm, I'm exhorting you to major in whatever is most conducive to you as your intermeditation, your co-meditation. Of course, you always can't control the condition, so I'm not always by the water. But once you learn the principle, then you start to be able to do it wherever you want. And also, of course, there's a lot of, nature is also within us, so we can intermeditate with our feelings, be with them, and inseparable from them, and embracing them rather than again them. Be with it rather than against it. That's the principle of co-meditation be with it and in it and experience it fully and letting it be. Letting go, we often hear letting go, but I want to add the point that letting go really means letting things come and go, letting be, and that's a very important point. And this is not overly simplistic, Tammy. I don't think so. I could talk to you in Tibetan and Sanskrit about this, about tatai shepa and nowness awareness and machupa, unfabricated and unaltered and all the zogchen terms. But I'm telling you, it's the carefree, openness of this kind of natural meditation or organic non-meditation really this is the great intermeditation that the masters eventually arrive at and that's why the masters don't necessarily emphasize at least in our tradition to advance meditations are not about how long you do it or how many prayers you say or what posture you're in or if your eyes are open or closed but about inseparability and um a combination of dissolving and totally connecting at the same time.
0: Okay, now you've said several things I want to unpack a little bit. In talking about letting go, you said it's important to let go and let come. And, you know, most of the time when people talk about letting go, they just talk about the dissolving, the letting go. But what does this letting come part of it mean for you?
1: Well, I think that's very one-sided, one-way street of the beginner meditator. People think generally letting go means getting rid of. But the the next thing will arise, whether it's in your mind or from outside or in life. As life is flow, not stasis, not static. So letting go means letting things come and go means letting be. Cultivating equanimity and non-attachment and choiceless awareness and being open to whatever comes, like uh, friendly, open, even interested being with it rather than again it. I'm repeating myself on purpose because this is very important. People often talk about letting go and then it becomes talk about non-attachment, renunciation, and maybe there's a tinge of suppressing, suppressing the emotions or thinking less or being calm and clear. We hear a lot calming the mind in the meditation ghetto, but I'm not sure that that's not a little bit what the great tr- pioneer Trungpa Rinpoche would call mental calisthenics and trying to achieve temporary states of mind rather than enjoying the united state of mind, which is what I'm talking about, which is a oneness that's beyond duality, two or one, or any notions of oneness or noneness. It's wholeness and completeness, and it's so in the moment that there's no necessarily talk about how long. So you let things come and go, that's the great letting be, and then more dissolved or one with or embraced in, embraced by the natural flow, natural meditation. I, I've coined it. I wrote about this 20 years ago in Awakening the Buddha Within. There's a section in Dzogchen, section about natural meditation and so now i'm putting forward more like practical applications of this in daily life where people can find what does it for oneself or together like um spirituality for couples we could talk about tantra that's a hot subject but we could also just talk about shared spirituality like shared intimacy and and not knowing who's doing what and dancing as if no one's watching, dancing together as if no one's watching, which may or may not be in bed, just in life. Mm-hmm. And making every moment really an I-thou, a meaningful connection, rather than I-it, an object-related connection, like what can I get from it or from you? Mm-hmm. But the I-thou connection, as Martin Buber called it, seeing the light or the divine in everyone and everything, that's like an inner core of this co-meditation or intermeditation, a kind of meditation um, or a communitation if we're going to talk about spirituality for couples or shared spirituality beyond even intimate lover partners.
0: You're good at the wordplay, LSD. You've got a lot going on here on the wordplay front. You're really good.
1: Well, I'm working on it because I'm getting, you know, I, I, first of all, this is my 13th or 14th book, Tommy. Second of all, I've been doing this for a long time, translating and teaching and working on and trying to make it fresh and not keep saying the same things like letting go and loving kindness. Like today there's a new quality that everybody's talking about, which is resilience. So, of course, this is included in what we used to call flexibility or balance or resourcefulness. But it's good to have some uh, new take on things. I really think so. It's a very helpful quality so that we're not brittle. Yeah. We're not so fixated. Resilience is its very easy to cultivate it through this kind of dissolving. Like the poet Basho said, and back to my nature meditation theme, we're co-meditating with nature. Basho, the great haiku poet, Zen poet of Japan, famously said, when I write a haiku about a tree, first I look at the tree, and I breathe out into the tree, and I breathe in out of the tree until I become the tree. Then a haiku gets written. Notice he didn't say, then I write a haiku. Mm -hmm. It's like, then haiku writes itself. So I think this is really about the art of living in oneness or in inseparability with everything. Every moment, that's the interbeing that Thich Nhat Hanh coined as such Mm -hmm. a beautiful way of understanding what we're talking about. Not just oneness, which seems like different than some other things, but even deeper. In Tibetan is a word called Zongtal, Zogchen word, which I'm thinking about, which it's like transparent, translucent, interpenetrating, transrealescence is the word that I've coined for this. Inseparability or intermeditation.
0: No good Lama, I'm pretty sure that Our listeners can follow co-meditation when you talk about being at the ocean and breathing and (laughs) letting the. I I think they can get that, but let's take a harder. I know it's abstract, but
1: I'm also trying to. It's not not abstract. I think it's
0: no. I don't think it's actually abstract. I think most people have the experience when they're by the Atlantic or the Pacific or some powerful ocean that they can do that. But let's take
1: or a sunset or music or something. Yeah, those are easy though. Sports exercise.
0: I wanna to get to something that might be hard, like mm-hmm. now I'm going to experience the inseparability and co meditate with somebody who has recently keyed my car or stolen from me. Right. Or something like yes. that. What's your practice advice in that situation?
1: Yes, that's the hard questions and we have to get to that. So let's take on an intermediate first, which is not just the beautiful sunset, you know, or the most conducive or meditating with your angelic, you know meditating and breathing with your angelic child in a quiet room at night well protected and secure and safe. It's sort of easy. But how about dealing with like grief and difficult feelings or anger or insecurity, you know, whatever comes up, anxiety in the moment. So being with it rather than against it, as i said before, not being against it, embracing it, allowing it, and letting it come and go and being in the next moment. I know this is fairly common meditation instruction but it's still very very important so not trying to minimize it or not grieve or shorten the grief that's also manipulative and ego controlling and probably fear-based or pleasure-seeking which is one-sided so co-meditating with the feeling the difficult feelings could be anger or whatever could be uh, fear or, or or death and mortality And then, having practiced on those difficult feelings or subjects, then we get to, you know, the classic definition or word would be like the enemy.
0: Okay, let's stay with the The difficult... You
1: know, the one that pushes your buttons.
0: Let's stay with the difficult feeling for a moment, because I think that can be hard for people. Let's stay with, pick any difficult emotion, it doesn't matter, and take me through very specifically... How I co meditate with this uncomfortable and challenging feeling?
1: Well, first of all, what is it the most, what we all want to do when we feel some pain?
0: Make it go away by taking a pill or a drink or something?
1: Well, by different means, right, and thus get into all kinds of habits and compensatory behaviors, some more unhealthy than others. So this is the counterintuitive. This is like facing your fears rather than contracting or insulating yourself by a compensatory behavior. You happen to mention a few like pills or drinks or other things. So from the meditator's point of view, opening to whatever is or whatever comes up in the body-mind, continuing in the present moment, and being one with it, being with it rather than again it, penetrating it, experiencing it fully, and letting it come and letting it go, as all things do sooner or later, and then the next thing comes also. So that's where the letting come is not being disappointed that you have some other feeling. It might be more of the same, but if you stop fueling it and fighting with it and reifying it and solidifying it, I can tell you that um, when you stop putting fuel in the gas tank, the engine eventually runs down, and this is really true emotionally also. Not that we need to be without emotions. I'm just saying that if we co-meditate come with our difficult feelings without trying to get rid of them or avoid them, without reifying them, with thinking they're so real that we're afraid of feeling them, they lose a lot of their um, impact or their their harmful you know, they don't make us anxious. They don't make us afraid. We just feel that and and, and, move, and and move on and let it come and go. And that's what I'm talking about, Tammy. I think Thich Nhat Hanh talked about this when he, in his teachings about cradling anger like a child who's throwing a tantrum, not trying to suppress it or get rid of it as soon as possible. That's like co-meditation. Hugging the child, holding the infant while they're having their tantrum and having the bigger view, a bigger picture, that this too will pass, and I love them, and love, I don't like tantrum, I don't like them barfing on my shoulder while I'm holding them, or whatever they're doing, but light, love is much bigger than polarities of like and dislike, so that's the co-meditating with tantrum, so if you have your own inner little tantrum, like I practice various kinds of, part of the Mahayana mind training, and We've been discussing is compassion, you know, forgiveness, equanimity. So I practice forgiveness and wishing the other well, mudita, wishing them well, rejoicing in their success, even if they're doing it at my expense. Kind of a, a, a defocus on my own uh, reaction, not trying to avoid the difficult feeling. It's like in the tantric practice of chud, which I know you're familiar with, putting your uh, facing the demon, inviting the demons in your own mind, and, and ferreting out the, the demons in your closet, looking for, for the boogeyman in the basement of your psyche, rather than locking the door and trying never to go in the basement. That's what we're talking about here. So I hope that's clear in some in some way in some way.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think you're talking about turning towards instead of turning away. Right. And then being with. Yeah.
1: Openness and accepting and embracing. Again, co-meditation means being with it rather than again it. I'm going to keep saying that because it's striking. It's different. It's not Buddhist jargon. It's slang, but it's, you know, in other words, not trying to get rid of thoughts when you meditate, but being aware of thoughts. That's called co-meditating with thoughts. Mindfulness of thoughts is meditation. Just thinking is not meditation. It doesn't bring the great benefits of meditation. So, co meditating with feelings is med- cultivating meditation of awareness and being more feelingful and soulful and through and through. Interpenetrating, we're back to that. Being more transparent rather than resistant. And then, when we get to the difficult person. Yeah, let's get to the difficult person. Yeah. Similarly. Breathing them in and breathing it out. Of course, we practice this in the laboratory of our own practice. Let's say our morning practice sitting or or somewhere before we are in the difficult situation: courtroom or argument or workplace, you know, or whatever, home battle, family, you know, altercation. But that's part of the mind training part. So we start to see that they want the same as we do. So we get to the we. We get from I to we. What do, what can we do together? What do we want? Rather than trying to get away from those difficulties without really facing them and going through them together. So there's the together in this, the shared awakening. That, that It's not a zero-sum argument. So we can... Again, I think we have to break it down to something practical like breathing or or eye gazing or contact or feeling what they feel, feeling where they're coming from, if they're fearful or if they're agitated or if they're, you know.
0: I'm wondering, LSD, I think it might be helpful if you could give me an example from your own life of maybe somebody that you really got into the crosshairs with someone you know was really somehow doing something to tear you down or something like that and how you were able to use co-meditation to have a breakthrough
1: okay so without mentioning names yeah i'll i'll use exactly the example you said somebody who whatever you just said was trying to tear me down yeah kind of a critic and sure quote, quote enemy you know things like that Look, I'm a nice guy. I grew up being a nice guy. My family's nice guys. You know, we don't have, like, domestic violence and stuff like that in my family or in my friends. So I grew up kind of naively thinking I'd never have enemies. My worst enemies was, like, the other team on the sports field that we played together every day with, that we were good friends with. <laughs> Those were my enemies, you know. Killed the quarterback. That that was my enemy. So I thought I was never really going to have enemies in life, but then it's kind of like the bureaucratic maxim: if you don't do anything, nobody can criticize what you did. So when I start to do things in the world and even like get successful or lead or stick up, be up in the radar, then I start to get some criticism and have some so-called enemies or severe critics. And I'm not going to go into the whys and the wherefores, sure. but so it bothered me a lot, and I could never resolve it no matter how much I tried. And I kept trying to talk to them, or write to them, or meet them, or talk to their people, or change things to in some way to suit them, or find a common ground, or have mediation. So many things over the years, and eventually I found. I had to write my own prayer at practice about this so that I could do this, could co-meditate with them in my mind so that when I was with them, I didn't see them as an enemy and I let go of that like dead bird that I'd been carrying around my neck for years and I had just moved on. By practicing forgiveness, or kind of like breathing with them and visualizing them, seeing them in front of me and putting their picture on my altar And being with them in my daily meditation, not just wishing well to the gurus and the the saints and my late parents or my late students who sent me, wanted their picture on my prayer table and things, but including them on my prayer table. And being with them in that way and saying explicitly, and here's the meditation, um, I I forgive you and set you free and wish you well in whatever you do, wherever you go. Everyone experiences and creates their own karma. It's not my responsibility whether you're happy or sad or like what I do or don't do. And this had an unbelievable relieving effect on me. And then I started to realize that there was another whole dimension of life that I could experience even when I saw those people, no matter what they said or did. But I had to practice that, kind of co-meditating with them, with their picture on my altar.
0: Okay, so you have their picture on your altar. That's very powerful. Then When well, you me... call
1: them to mind. I'm just saying yeah. the principle is of co-meditating with yeah. them and getting used to being with them and having a, you know, more be, being in my best self with them rather than in my reactive to criticism or what I felt like unfair abuse or manipulation when I was with them. And then I was just like related to them in a totally different way. My best self surged forth. I was used to being my best self even with them or whatever they said or did. And Mm -hmm. that freed me, which is what we're talking about, made me happy and content. And they no longer felt like my enemies, just like critics or like we have different theologies. They're like the the other people that believe in what they believe in. Okay, be happy. It frees me. So this is how co-meditating with them in my mind and with their picture in front of me helped me let go and let things come and go and feeling the discomforting feelings and not be so reactive to them or wish they weren't there. Just like, oh, hello, old friend. It's a bad weather day. It's the monsoon season again. Look, because, you know, here you are. And within that, I can enjoy the monsoon season of those feelings.
0: Mm hmm. Okay, Alistair, one of the other things you I mentioned. I feel like you're not very I think I'm fairly satisfied. I mean, I was. You know, I just
1: told you, it was a major thing. I don't yeah. know if I explained it right, but I have a typed prayer practice. I, you know, I even have it on the visor of my car. For when I start to resent those people and think about the people that I hate, who I'm not going to mention, who treated me like that and still do, then it frees me because I have there's like another whole part of me that I can be. I don't have to give in to those thoughts, but I also don't have to get rid of them. It's like. I take that with the forgiveness and the wishing them well. And it's so like my Buddha nature surges forward. It's like, of course we wish them well. They're going to die soon. I'm going to die soon. They're, You know, little little man trying to build empire and feeling competitive with little me, you know. I don't need an empire. I'm happy looking at my little pond out the window here. It's like a huge breakthrough. It's a quantum leap, not a little incremental being a better person. So I feel like this kind of practice of being with it rather than against it and really dissolving or merging into everything helps me see through the illusion that we're separate.
0: I do feel satisfied with your answer, LSD. just for the record.
1: Okay, good. And of course, should is a great practice for that too, but we're not talking about that today. You know, putting your head in the demon's mouth rather than trying to get away from the demons as we usually do. Even if the demon's pain or cancer or whatever the quote demon is, that, you know, psyche.
0: Why don't you introduce for our listeners what should practice is because they may be unfamiliar with what you're talking about?
1: Well, I didn't know if you really want to even, you know, get into that.
0: Well, you can explain it briefly.
1: Okay, so there's a wisdom tradition practice in Tibetan Buddhism called should. It means cutting or cutting through or ego slaying or cutting. And it's about instead of habitually contracting or running away from whatever is painful, scary or difficult actually pumping up the thing that we're most afraid of making it visualizing and it, imagining it even as like a demon and putting offering us a, the demons to come and actually take over and like feeding them with ourselves with our body with everything we're attached to with our body with our self with our mind with our health, with our age, uh, you know, with our life, really. So in other words, when a fear comes up, you you just co meditate with the fear. You you offer yourself to the the demons that bring that fear. And so we do it practically by, in the beginning training, by going to like a, a cremation site or a scary graveyard or a cancer ward or a boneyard butcher place. At night, I mean, I'm talking about in the old world, that's what people would do. Here, cemeteries like parks, so it's not necessarily so scary. But um, whatever is frightening, the children's cancer ward at the hospital is pretty frightening to some of us. And um, face our fears, and then we see that it's not really as terrifying as we had feared. It's like going in the basement and finding out there's no boogeyman down there, actually, or, you know, in the dark trying to learn to sleep without a nightlight is part of, could be part of growing up. So in the tantric practice, and this is a wisdom practice, is from the Prajnaparamita tradition, actually, from the female master Machig, the unique mother Machig, should, helps us slay or cut through this ego separation between us and what comes up in our mind, like fear. Fear of outer things, fear of death, fear of pain, fear of illness, fear of loss, fear of others, maybe fear of public speaking or fear of being exposed in public or called on to stand up. People have all these kind of fears people talk about in polls and what their greatest fear is. But also fears of the uncomfortable feelings that come up within that we try to avoid with many compensatory habits. So I think we can be more aware in this way and see through the schmutz, the kaka that distorts our windscreen, the windshield, and we can actually be more clear and transparent and, and, and see by our own lights where we're going and really see through the shadows and not be afraid of the shadowy side of our psyche. And this is very important from the point of view of uh, many many of us are very, uh, people are very fear-based and a lot of violence comes from fear as we see today. And I would really like to see a little more of the, I don't know who to pick on. How about the young law enforcement guys with big weapons who are killing unarmed teenagers in the streets, a little mindful anger management or dealing with their fears and prejudices and knowing themselves better before they're giving given deadly arms and a hair trigger or hair trigger reactions. So some of this co-meditation helps us to be with the other and be more uh, tolerant or resilient or patient or aware, have some space, create some space between stimulus and response so we don't just have a blind, knee-jerk reaction, a blind, knee-jerk, unthinking, habitual reaction. This will go a long way in today's violent uh, climate. And I'm all for mindful anger management, mindful emotional training, and so on. And it relates to what we're talking about, going back to traditional practices like chud or ego cutting. Mm -hmm.
0: What you're talking about, what's happening within the law enforcement world on the streets, brings me to another question about co-meditation that I want to ask you, which is, what about when we encounter political injustices or other aspects of the world in which we feel it's really hard for us to be aligned for, not against? How do we practice co-meditation when we encounter the injustice in the world?
1: Well, I think that's exactly the point of what we're talking about, Tammy. It's not that we're for injustice. It's it's we're for the we, the we in this, not just the I. So, I grew up in the '60s. I know you're you're a young thing, <laughs> but I'm a '60s guy, and so we were countercultural and anti-war and so on. But it was a little one-sided, it was sort of like being anti-everything. And then people dropped out because they couldn't entirely change it, and they moved to British Columbia or Northern Vermont, and aren't really engaged in the world but i think there's an alternative to that and that is you know that's the letting that was the letting go one one way street that i was criticizing before but the letting come and go means that you let come also your feeling of trying to do something about the injustice so that we can be more engaged like a bodhisattva and step into the mess and the shit pile and jump into the cesspool of of partisan politics or the materialistic bitten world and swim with our mouth open and swallow the whole ocean whole, like a Zen master would say. And we can really do that. And, and not, not be for shit, but not be against it either. I mean, shit's a very important part of our life and our body processes. So I think it's it's not just about whether you're against it or for it but it's a little deeper than that, so that we can actually interbe with injustice and take it on without fear that we can't deal with it or we're afraid of power or we're afraid of, of, of getting hurt or, or not being effective, that we can really take it on. So I don't think this is a message of passivity, but it is a pacifist message of non-aggression towards whatever arises. And embracing it.
0: Again, LSD, I think it would be helpful for me to have an actual example, if you would. So how you would inter-be or intermeditate with a challenging crisis in the world?
1: Well, challenging crises in the world are a little big to take on right now. So let me go back to the end, I said before, my critics and enemies. Rather than just avoiding them totally, which was tempting and sort of possible because uh, many of them maybe aren't around here, let's say, exactly. Um, they're not my next-door neighbor. They may not even be American, some of them. Rather than avoiding them totally, I could I found a way to just uh, be with them, be friendly and polite to them and not expect anything from them and to be very uh, – I'm more relaxed with them because I, 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 I let – come and go, I can interbe, I can co-meditate with them. So that's like my little war or peace prize, that I, I find the freedom and peace and not afflicted by their daring do, even in person. So I think by extension, if we take that into the bigger world, then we can be um, less aggressive, but less reactive, but more pr- but very principled and focused and determined. We can Mm -hmm. actually accomplish more because we're clear. We're not so reactive. We're not blinded by rage or self-righteousness. We can still address systemic um, injustice and uh, inequality and unfairness and um, get skillful professionally or, you know, however you engage in the world in these things and uh, actually making a difference. I don't think this is a, a call to um, be passive or indifferent because equanimity is not the same as uh, indifference or or, um, complacence, not at all. It can make us more effective. We'll be more balanced social activists or parents or citizens rather than dropouts. I think there's the place to say that I think Buddha's greatest teaching is the middle way, not meditation. We hear about meditation a lot, but the middle way not too tight and too loose, not too much or too little, not all or nothing. This is, I think, a great touchstone for me in life. And this can help us uh, inter-be with everything and neither avoid nor indulge, for example, and not always be uh, like an enraged Buddhist, but be more like an engaged uh, Buddha or Bodhisattva.
0: Now, good Lama, at the back of your new book, Make Me One With Everything, you have 28 potent aphorisms for enlightenment, and there are just a couple that I thought would be really good to go over that weren't clear to me, and I thought it would be fabulous to have you explain them. So here's one that I thought was very intriguing, but I didn't fully understand. I think you have to love first and see second. Right. What do you mean by that?
1: Um, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the context that that appears. So first of all, I've talked in this book quite a bit about this openness, this Mahayana, inclusivity, this not get away from it all or try to suppress things. I've talked about intermediate meditating, co-meditating with whatever is as it is with others, with nature, with feelings. I've talked about Lojung, mind and attitude transformation, and Tonglen, giving and receiving, and riding the breath, exchanging self and others, and the principles of that, Tammy, which are encoded in the 59 Lojung slogans. I hate to translate it as mind training, so it's an attitude transformation, I'll keep saying, slogans of Atisha, which comes from uh, 800, 900 years ago in Tibet. So I have my translation of that as Appendix A. I think and then appendix B is my own aphorisms. I just want to which I took from the book. One liners. Like don't let just let go, let come and go, let be. Or if you're not here now you won't be there then. Or take a breath, you deserve it. It's not that hard to understand these, but I think it's useful to remember these like the traditional 59 mind training slogans what think about one a week one a day or put it on an index card or yellow sticky and that's one of the practices i recommend in the book is if you take one of those like there's all kinds of levels of these slogans tammy as you would know like my favorite one is always keep an open mind or joyous attitude this is from a thousand years ago from atisha so he's advocating Always be upbeat or open and joyous. And I think Trungpa Rinpoche really embodied this. He was always talking about being of good cheer. There are others, like don't pass the buck. And there are others that are a little more esoteric, like take your own conscience as guide, not the opinion of others. Uh, not esoteric, a little more profound. So I made uh, also a list of my own. And some of them, like I said, are very easy to understand, but I think they're worth thinking about, or picking one, or making your own and thinking about it, like whatever is your touchstone. I'd be interested to hear, maybe off the record, what is Tammy Simon's, you know, favorite saying, or one liner or quote, mantra that she goes to when she needs to take refuge in a moment. Like, here's one of mine, nobody can do it alone, believe me, I've tried, exclamation mark. So that's one of my 28, I think in the book it's like 32 bite-sized Buddhas. Yeah. So what's the one, again, that you The one that I'm about? curious
0: about is, I think you have to love first and see second.
1: Yes. I think what I'm saying is that if we're going to talk about wisdom and compassion, as the Dalai Lama would say is the essence of Buddhism, or Prajnanupaya, again, wisdom and compassion, I think that we've we got to prioritize the heart over the mind. The mind is doing fine in these scientific days. I want to prioritize the heart over... That's what I'm saying. We have to love enough to be wise, not just keep trying to be more wise, which easily tends to become so mental. And this co-meditative practice of interbeing is so loving, it's so embracing, it's so um, self-transcending or something. It's self-dissolving into the wholeness the bubble into the sea from which it's never been a part in this, that I think that that's the point that I'm making here about being more heart-centered. What did Don Juan say in Carlos Castaneda's books? A path with heart. Just give me a path with heart. That's what I'm saying. Of course, Buddhism is a wisdom tradition, not so much a faith or a matter of beliefs. But give me a path with heart. And I think today I'm going to reiterate in these scientific days, these technological days where we know so much but we understand so little, including about ourselves, I'm afraid, this over-information era, I think leading with the heart is not a bad thing. But again, balance the middle way. So heart and mind, body and soul, wisdom and compassion, the two wings of the Bodhisattva bird. So that's what I was thinking about Mm -hmm. that one-liner or bite-sized Buddha. My buddy Ramdas, who you know well and is such a pioneer and mentor to us all, he's always nagging us Buddhist teachers about being so mental, and uh, he's advocating making the journey from the head to the heart, that that's the spiritual path, and uh, I'm all for it.
0: Now, Good Lama, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of what might be really hard for someone to co-meditate with for whatever reason I'm trying to think of what might be hard instead of what might be easy and what's occurring to me is that one of the things that might be really hard is to really interbe with oneself when you're feeling really self-critical yes good really one. down on yourself and what would be I know it well. What would be your advice in that situation? How to meditate? Yeah.
1: Good question. First of all, it helps me, but I'm a word person and an articulator, maybe somebody else feels it their way into this to name it. So I'm gonna name it like the inner tyrant or the inner critic. So, co- how to co-meditate or intermeditate with the inner tyrant or the inner critic, or the harsh inner cro- coach? These are all names that you know people might have for them. Uh, you know that harsh inner voice. So, I think at that moment, that's the time, it really. And I used to always try to shut it out and hate it and resent it and think, "Oh, damn it! That's my football coach telling me I'm, um, you know, out of shape again, or I'm, um, you know, I'm not." working out enough or that's my parent you know the voice thing you're not good enough never good enough never be good enough and i so wanted to shut them up that's not being with it that's being again it and that didn't work that's just like reifying it and resisting it and running away from it and i finally found how to co-meditate how to interbe with that is to recognize that and bring awareness to it and breathe in when I hear that and breathe out, quote, with them. You notice I'm using the breath here just because it's a good way to slow us down and bring us into like some intentional awareness rather than reactivity. It's really not about the breath per se. It's about the attention, bringing it back, to collecting, or recollecting the moment, remindfulness, remembering to remember what we're doing while we're doing it, remindfulness, which is here co-meditating, interbeing, being meditating with the harsh critic and recognizing it's just one of the many voices in the kindergarten of my mind, and I'm not one of the kindergarten teacher kids anymore under the thumb of that so-called authority. That's a very out-of-date, anachronistic throwback to my childhood, and it, uh, it, it's just one of the many voices in that kindergarten, and I'm like the kindergarten teacher. I get to decide whether, you know, to listen to those voices or not. Maybe I do need to get more in shape. Maybe I'm not good enough at, I don't know, I'll just pick something. Writing, I need to learn to edit myself better. Maybe. But always hearing in your mind that you're not good enough or whatever form of it it takes for you, Tammy Simon, or you, our dear listener, whoever you are, you can now decide with your adult You're the kindergarten teacher. So it's a shift in perspective. But I don't expect anybody to take my word for it. I think you can look into this and see for yourself if this is not true. Do you really have to listen? Are you still a dependent? Are you still under those guardians? Or are you grown up now? Maybe they're old and you're taking care of them and they're like children for whatever reason. Maybe they're dead and buried and we're still listening to those voices as if we're not pretty enough. Or whatever your critic is, you're not doing or accomplishing enough. Whatever your harsh inner tyrant is, that that harsh voice, that never good enough, that critic that's always trying to make you fit into the square hole, no matter what shape, peg, or flower you are. And that's been very freeing to me. That also helps relate to the outer critics again, because I'm an adult. I don't need the approval of the teacher or the parent anymore. I am the teacher and the parent. And I'm not just saying in an ego sense. I'm saying, take you, we get, learn to take our seat through this co-meditation with the harsh critic or the inner, the harsh coach, the uh, inner tyrant. I sit on my Buddha seat now, and then I take criticism as constructive or destructive as it may be, and I weigh it myself like an adult, like the kindergarten teacher listens to some of the children's voices, and others, she just lets them carry on, just play, just chirp, 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 like little birds. So in a way, this is the view, or the bigger mind, the bigger picture, the bigger awareness that's aware of the things that come up in your mind, so you're quote, co-meditating with them, if you want to talk meditation language. You're interbeing with them. You're, you're, you're peacefully coexisting with them in the classroom, but it's a figure ground shift. You're not one of the little children anymore. You're the kindergarten teacher. This is just one way of structuring it, but it's a picture that I like, that I, I use, that's fairly clear to me. And that's freed me a lot from the inner tyrant and the drivenness. And I wish that for others who suffer similarly, and I know many do, from I'm hearing the, these harsh voices inside. You can choose now whether to listen to them or not. And I'm not saying you should listen to me. I'm saying when you do look inside, when you turn the searchlight, light inward, when you bring this kind of introspection and contemplative awareness in, instead of looking outside for what you think you want and need, you have a whole different goal, a uh, wealth of natural resources to explore and exploit and you start to realize that your own inner beauty and, and, and mine your own natural resources for change and you can be responsible and be, make decisions and, ta- and, and, and succeed or fail on your own terms not others and rely on one's own conscience or inner truth, or inner guru, not on, out, only on outer authorities, especially outdated ones that we adopted when we were um, 2, five, eight, 10 years old, which was a long time ago.
0: Good Lama, just to finish our conversation, maybe you could tell me about this title, Make Me One With Everything, and why, as the Dalai Lama, you're particularly qualified to write such a book.
1: Well, <laughs> the Delhi Lama is a funny joke that my mother uh, called me, but she used to eventually found out she thought Buddhism was quite kosher. Although, at first she didn't quite like that I was abroad for over 20 years, in the 70s and 80s, and away from my family in New York. But... Um, I begin with the joke, which is quite well known about the Dalai Lama coming to a hot dog vendor and saying, make me one with everything. Because I'm talking about in this, obviously, the practice of from separateness, I to we, this co-meditation, and so on, as we talked about before, and... um, Everybody knows that joke. It was in my Awakening the Buddha Within book 20 years ago, and it was on the Internet in those days. I didn't make it up. But I added a few other innings, uh, which I'm glad to share with you, Tammy, because you're a good old friend and our listeners. So then the Dalai Lama is waiting. The hot dog guy hands over a hot dog laden with all the trimmings, and the Dalai Lama hands it. You know, this is like, I'm visualizing a New York scene, a Brooklyn Bronx scene, a hot dog vendor on the street. And the Dalai Lama hands over a $20 bill, a sawbuck, as they call it in New York, in Long Island. And then there's a pregnant pause. And the Dalai Lama's looking at the hot dog vendor in his white T-shirt, and the Dalai Lama's in his maroon and gold claret garb. Is it a staring contest? Are they meditating? Is there been some misunderstanding perhaps? And finally the Dalai Lama cracks, he gives. He gives in. He says, Is there no change? He probably just says, No change? And the hot dog vendor says, Change comes from within. (laughs) So I made that up. (laughs) That's my joke. And I have a few other extra innings. But what I'm really talking about is spirituality and oneness, enlightenment, whatever we call it, this great search for what we need and want, our highest goals and aspirations by whatever name we call it. It doesn't have to be intimidating. We can lighten up or we enlighten up. It's a beautiful, joyous thing. We can make up jokes. We can joke about God, the Pope, the Dalai Lamas, or even worse, about ourselves. We can. We can learn to laugh at ourselves and laugh together. This is so important. I'm sure I've told you this, that my girlfriend in the 70s, Tina, or Das, as we used to call her in my life, <laughs> Satsang, or community. She used to call me serious Das because I was so serious, a student of these things and practitioner. But I'm much less serious, or I'm much younger now. How about that? Take it more lightly.
0: I like Had it. You. Pleasure. You let me call you LSD. I like it.
1: Uh, what choice do I have? You're the man. You're the master.
0: Oh, I like it when you call me the man. The most
1: enlightened man I've ever met, Tammy.
0: <laughs> I think you're making my day now, LSD.
1: <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. I told you, we started off with this appearances are all. As I say sometimes when people are meditating away, you know I lead 100-day silent retreats, I lead 10-day retreats. We have some serious practice sessions as well as other shorter things. Sometimes I joke with people and, and t- give them the instructions that to sit there and try to look as enlightened and as happy as they possibly can because appearances are all. And then people laugh and kind of relax, and which is an important part of really going deeper into this subject, not just frivolously, but having deep fun, not just cheap fun. So I think one of the be- great benefits of spiritual life, contemplative practices, and our subject here, meditation, intermeditation and so on, is it's a great friend with benefits. It's really a delight. It, it, it brings so much buoyance. And, and delight. So, I love it. I've studied it my whole life, but I'm getting simpler and more, um, I don't know, poetic or, 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 or uh, carefree in my old age. So, thank God for, for the Buddha. That's what I say, for Dharma and Sangha.
0: And thank God for the good Lama, the Delhi Lama, Lama Suryadas, LSD. Thank you so much. Thanks for this conversation on your new book, "Make Me One with Everything: Buddhist Meditations to Awaken from the Illusion of Separation." Always good to talk to you, LSD. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Tammy. And let me just say, thank God and Buddha for sounds true, and all who sail on it, and you, and all of your good works in spreading the the beautiful uh, good news. And the joy of
0: awakening together. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you. I've always said that, and I always will. I'm one of your biggest fans for decades. We're in the, you called it not me, meditation. meditation
1: we We're we together. Yes. You and me, we're we It's all about the we not the penis.
0: Soundstreet.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.